Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 2 Yet there are pangs of keener woe, of which the sufferers never speak, nor to the world's cold pity show the tears that scald the cheek, wrung from their eyelids by the shame and guilt of those they shrink to name, whom once they loved with cheerful will, and love though fallen and branded still. Bryant. From the same to the same. November 2nd. Five days of anxious sorrow have dragged on with expectation's snail-like pace, but brought no news of Evelyn. Heavy hearts, to which every passing hour adds weight, gather round her desert in the eyes that brightened at her ready jest and spirited repartee, only lift their swollen lids to gaze on her vacant seat, or turn sorrowfully to one another. The grief which overflows in words may look for and receive consolation, but Mr. Merritt's carefully mask yet intense anguish silences the soothing voice of sympathy. On the first night of Evelyn's absence, when he was alone with me, his feelings found a transient vent, but since that hour... He has relapsed into his usual, apparently cold and formal state. He disregards none of the little ceremonious observances to which he is accustomed to attend, and gives way to no burst of sorrow. He never even mentions the name of his wife, but I remarked this morning that his hairs had rapidly whitened, his knitted brow never for a moment unbends, his form has become emaciated, and his sharp cheekbones look as though they would pierce their thin and hueless covering. He would willingly hide himself from the inquisitive world, whose sentence he has ever held in awe, but his commercial occupations and responsibilities will not permit the concealment. Almost at every step he encounters some friend who inquires whether any intelligence has yet been received of Mrs. Merritt, and his struggle to veil his feelings and meet the curious eyes about him is consuming both body and spirit. He, who would have pledged wealth, luxury, and even comfort to purchase for himself, and all that was his popular approbation and reverence, now knows that his name is bandied upon every lip. And that calumny, pity, and contempt have breathed it by turns. To a man of his temperament can you conceive much greater misery. The sight of his child, too, wholly unmans him. Whenever its grandmother enters with the infant in her arms, he either hastily leaves the room or motions her to take it away. The little cherub, young as it is, has its mother's delicately curved lip and flashing smile, and, oh, I can well imagine that these are too painful for him to behold. 
Upon Mrs. Willard, her recent affliction has had an equally marked and even more unpleasant effect than upon her southern-in-law. She has thrown aside her habitual softness and unwanted blandishments. Her sorrow vents itself in angry words and sharp rebukes to her inferiors and dependents, and in perpetual ebullitions of discontent. She is ever quarrelling with her fate. Her son-in-law is the only person whom she addresses with kindness. But though she is still as careful of his comforts, and as attentive in pleasing him, her efforts are wholly unacknowledged or unnoticed. Her attachment to me has, I think, strengthened, for she will scarcely permit me to leave her presence. She talks of Evelyn incessantly, but there is a spirit of selfishness and calculation even in her maternal grief, which appears to be inherent in her nature. It evinced itself this morning when she said to me, Should Evelyn, if it were possible that Evelyn had been killed by accident, do you think Walter would marry again? This sounds heartless, does it not? But selfishness renders us worse than heartless. Ellen and her father are less to be pitied than the other mourners, for their mutual misfortune has knit them more closely together, and in their perfect sympathy with each other they are cheated of half their suffering. It is the heart which sorrows in loneliness that is truly miserable. Grief that is shared is lightened. Ellen has now all her feelings under such perfect control that she can bow meekly to the will of heaven. She feels and knows it to be a sin to yield herself up to unremitting and all-absorbing sorrow, and patience and resignation are her loveliest characteristics. Her sister is ever in her thoughts and often upon her lips, yet none of her duties are neglected. Netta, Billy, and her, their parents still claim her attention. Her visits to them are hardly less frequent, and her time is scarcely less occupied. But she has not yet had the courage to resume her pen and continue her translation. She probably fears that in the quietude of her own chamber, her thoughts may wander whither they should not. Colonel Damoreau daily pays the Willards a short visit, but he is too thoughtful, has too much tact and delicacy ever to mention the absent one. Can it be that in my first impression of this man I have wronged him? Have I mistaken ordinary gallantry for deeper emotion when I mistrusted his intentions to Evelyn? Had he really been enamoured, would his present mournful and subdued look, which he seemed merely to assume out of respect for us, be the only evidence of his sorrow? True, he is too completely a man of the world to display his heart, but had she actually been an object of intense interest to him, her loss would have left some deeper trace of affliction than that which his countenance now wears." Amy Elwell, too, is a constant visitor. She had a way of her own, a very peculiar one, of making herself useful to Mrs. Willard and Ellen, and they find something consolatory in her gentle presence. Since her return from the South, she has not been as intimate with Evelyn as formerly, both because Evelyn seemed to prefer the society of Laura, 
and because Amy herself has been engrossed by Blanche, but the interior affection of the two early friends was unabated. I fancy I have found the clue to Amy's melancholy, if indeed her resigned sorrow deserves that name. Yesterday, while Amy and I were sitting in the drawing-room at Mr. Merritt's, awaiting Ellen's return from her walk, Colonel Damoreau was announced. Amy had not seen him since her visit to the South. She started, involuntarily rose, but sat down again. Her breath quickened, her color came and went. She half stretched out her hand, then drew it away and sank back in her seat. I watched her in astonishment, for the expression of her countenance reminded me of her look when she appeared in the tableau as Medora. Colonel Damoreau is too well-bred to seem to notice her agitation, but it could hardly have escaped his quick eyes. He expressed great pleasure at the renewal of his acquaintance, and requested to be ranked amongst the friends who were permitted to visit her. She quickly recovered her self-possession, but conversed with unusual reserve. When the colonel bade us good morning, she followed my example in extending him her hand, and she has been more cheerful than I have seen her since our return. I have omitted to mention that Laura Hilson, in spite of the severe and bitter rebukes which she has received from Mrs. Willard, has not by any means, dropped the acquaintance. She selects those hours at which she is certain of finding Mr. Merritt at home for her visit, and I never gave her credit for such powers of fascination as she has evinced in her efforts to console and divert him. To Evelyn she no longer ventures to elude, but her manner implies that the absent wife is unworthy of a thought." I was not present when Richard first heard of his sister's disappearance, but his mother assures me that he swore he would find her, dead or alive, and maintained that she loved him too well to disgrace him by any imprudent act. Mrs. Willard has great hopes that his search will be effectual, and since we have nothing but hope to sustain us, we cannot dispense with its reviving presence but hourly hope against hope. End of chapter 2